Okay, so going kosher in three easy steps. Um, I was, well, they don't give out the handouts. Um, I was handed the title. So uh, had they said going kosher in four easy steps, I would have to add a step. But thankfully, there were exactly three easy steps. And uh, step number one, I think, is already, most people that are going to be hearing such a class are already have the inspiration. Some people are inspired for different reasons. Some people are inspired to say, hey, it's what the Torah says. It's the Torah's dietary. I know someone who's going kosher now, and he's inspired to do it. But he's already in the process of implementation, which is the second step uh, of his of his desire to go kosher. So the reason why people are inspired to go kosher is for many different reasons. I think that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a mitzvah. It's a Torah's requirement. Uh, it's culturally Jewish. Uh, as well, it's something that uh, people are interested for a multitude of reasons. Either way, the second someone's inspired to do it, they have to come up with some sort of roadmap uh, where they could follow the step step by step to ensure that they do it in a proper way, that they integrate the kosher practices and the kosher way of life uh, into their lives and actually go kosher. And the big secret here is is that while the class is titled Three Easy Steps, it doesn't say three quick steps. It's not three quick steps. Because implement, Im- implementation of a kosher lifestyle from a non-kosher lifestyle should take anywhere between one to two years. That's the, the general time frame given. So what we're going to do today is talk not so much about inspiration, uh, how you know how, what motivates someone to go kosher, uh, but rather implementation. How do you integrate this into your life? And lastly, perseverance. How do you deal with all the challenges that arise uh, um, from the transition of a non-kosher lifestyle to a kosher lifestyle? Okay, how do we, how's that sound? Sounds good? Great. Okay, so I think it's important to know in the onset that going kosher from non-kosher is a tremendous challenge. It's difficult. And it's difficult for a few reasons. Reason number one, I think, is that all change is difficult. You're going to change any, anything about your life, the way you eat, the way you sleep, the way you work, the way you interact with people. Uh, you want to become uh, someone who is more patient. You want to make that change in your life. Any change is difficult. But I think kosher specifically is, is difficult because kosher is, is a lifestyle. It's, it's, it covers many areas of your life. The way you shop, you have to change that. The way you manage your home, you have to change that. You're going to change the way you interact with guests, the way you maintain your kitchen, the way you cook. All these things are changing when you go kosher. So it's much, it's it's very overreaching. It's not just a specific change in one area of your life. Rather, it's a very broad change in multiple areas of your life, which adds another uh, another degree of difficulty to going kosher. And we talk about the. Uh, the pots and the pans and the utensils and the cutlery and the dishes, those things, I think, are, uh, while it's it's a lot of stuff, but it's not that hard. That's not so much of a lifestyle change. But, you know, the limitations on eating out, for example. You know, in Houston, we don't have so many kosher restaurants. We have a lot. We don't have a ton like there are elsewhere. So that is a significant change for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, you, you can't just go out to eat in the places that you're comfortable in. Or that you're accustomed to. So it's a difficult thing. And I think also that if you go kosher, there's some things that you're going to have to give up. You're going to have to forfeit. Where 
There's no, there isn't a way to have your cake and eat it all, and eat it too, as they say. Right? Going kosher um, for someone who has spent um, the majority of the life or a significant portion of the life eating non-kosher and maybe uh, becoming fond of certain non-kosher foods, they have to realize that going kosher will have you know will uh, force them uh, to have to make tough choices because they'll have to they'll have a conflict between these foods that they like and their new kosher life. All that being said, I think it's important to realize, and this is a kind of the theme of Kosher Month, is that kosher is so much easier now than it's ever been before. We walked, we, we took a tour uh, with a group of people in, in West Houston. So we went to a, a people that never kept kosher in their lives. Uh, and maybe some of them did, maybe some have, some have, some had more of awareness than others. But these are relatively new people to the whole idea, to the whole discussion of kosher and we walked up and down our whole foods and we picked off items off the shelf and the vast majority the overwhelming majority of the of the items were kosher not the entire meat section meat you know the meat and uh, fish poultry uh, section besides for that uh, package items almost everything what, what do you say 70 80 percent alex probably <laughs> well i saw at least a dozen it was incredible, and, I, and there's such a wide array as well of um, of, of kosher um, supervisions, so, you know, marks that I've never seen. All over the world, all over America, kosher is booming. Kosher is widely available. Kosher is ubiquitous. Kosher is in every supermarket in America, and kosher is much easier than it ever was before. Okay, so so it's easy to do. There are some difficulties. There are some challenges. Um, you're inspired to do it. You want to integrate it into your life. It's going to take some time. Slow, gradual. We don't believe in jumping in at once. Even though I would say some people could still do it. Some people could jump in at once if they just if, if they just if they have a very strong motivation. If they they made this commitment, this determination, uh, that with absolute certainty that they're in. They jump in. They're in. Yeah, I kind of you know feel like there's some things in life that you kind of have to jump into, uh, like marriage. People don't say, "Oh, you know what? Let's do this gradually. Let me just test the waters. Let me dip my toe in." Uh, it's just it's one of the themes where you have to just jump in. You have to just jump in and hope <laughs> hope you didn't make a mistake. Um, so the the idea of 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 all change of all change in lifestyle. Uh, necessarily being slow and gradual is not necessarily true. But I think with regards to kosher, for most people, uh, the optimal way of doing it is slow and gradual, step-by-step, micro-sized bites. Don't change too much too radically. Don't um, uh, you know, don't bite off more than you could chew. Uh, and the reason why is because the likelihood of you succeeding is greatly increased if it's done slowly and gradually. If you do it all at once, it's like a diet. You want to change your diet all at once. So you spend two or three days and you're fighting, you're fighting, you're successful. Then the third day you go on the binge. It is a diet. But, well, it is a diet. I understand. Well, it's a good way to do yeah, it. It's a diet. You want to change your diet. If you try to change it radically from being a junk food uh, binger to someone who just eats leafy, green leafy vegetables, it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not. And, you, you know, because it, it's so painful. It's such a conflict. And the greater the conflict, the lower the likelihood of success. But if this is a minor conflict, and you can keep on that going for a long time, it's it's um, it's it's like, likely to succeed. We have a um, 
I always uh, say this over from Rav Dessler. He said that uh, Rabbi Dessler of England, the great rabbi who died in 1954, he said that um, he compared the idea of, of change to a spring. You're, putting the, you're facing pressure, and it's like you're pushing the spring. If you push it too hard, there's the risk of backlash. You try to do too much at once. You try to climb the mountain without taking a break, without slow, you know, without having things settle. It's likely it's in a backlash, and not only will you not accomplish that that you set out to accomplish, but in all likelihood you'll regress you know, even beyond the starting point. So I, I think it's a good, good rule of thumb uh, to um, to talk about a slow integration. So I have over here a handout. Let's give out the handouts. This I copied from the book uh, Kosher for the Clueless but Curious. So they have a, a chapter on... Yeah, they have a chapter on, on you know, the six steps. They're called six steps of... Uh, step, you know, one step at a time approach to integrate kosher in your life. So start from the bottom. Number one, the decision. So you, someone decides that I'm going to experiment keeping kosher. I'm, I'm committed to eventually keeping kosher. I have a, I have a student in um, Kingwood. We met him when we spoke. I spoke at a temple, uh, Beth Torah, about a week and a half ago. Was it a week and a half ago? And uh, he was one of my students there. And he, him and his wife decided to go kosher. Uh, but their uh, their plan, their path is very similar to this. You know, they're gradually weaning themselves off some non-kosher foods, gradually um, adopting a more kosher uh, consumer outlook, and slowly integrating the kosher. Then it's very smart because they will probably be successful. And talking about turning over their kitchen, and you know, but those things all take some time. Um, okay, so someone decides, and I think that maybe I would add something here. After you decide, I think it's important to get some education. You have to learn the basics of kosher. I don't know, it, does, it doesn't include that here. You have to learn what kosher is from, what the sources say, what what's the rationale behind it. I think it's important to also um, understand maybe some of the deeper insights. If you're going to adopt something in your life, you want to make sure you understand it as, be- as best as best possible. For me, I grew up in a kosher family. I always had kosher. To me, it's just the way of life. I don't know anything else. But assuming if I was if if I had grown up in a different kind of uh, society or family uh, background, and if I would have made such a radical change, it's a big deal for me. So I want to make sure that you understand. It. You want to make sure you understand it. You have to understand why you're doing it. And kosher, while the primary reason we always say is because that's what the Torah says. It's the Torah's diet. It's the Jewish people's diet. It's just the way it is. Accept it. Take it or leave it. Still, there are deep, deep, tremendously deep insights as well. And you know, this book, for, for one, has a little bit of the Kabbalistic perspective. There are, there are reasons. It's important to educate yourself not only on the laws, their sources, but also on the on the on, on the kabbalistic and, and, and to, to give give yourself a flavor to the activities. Don't just do it because that's just the way it is. But you know, I, I think the likelihood of success will significantly increase uh, when someone has the attitude or the understanding of I'm doing this because I have to do it, but I also 
want to do it because I understand much more of the deeper, uh, maybe perhaps even mysterious and hidden meanings behind what I'm doing. So you make the decision, you decide to go kosher, you get some education, education in the laws, educated in the spirit of the law, the reasonings, the sources. Stage two, you begin really slowly. What would you follow the first thing that they would suggest you to do? You eliminate one non-kosher food item from your diet. So you say, if I have you know, 10 or 20 different items in my diet which are non-kosher, which is very unlikely because it's almost hard to find 20 non-kosher items. Uh, but let's say someone likes lots of different shellfish. So eliminate one of them. Or someone likes uh, a certain, um, I guess, pork or some certain this or certain that or certain mixtures of milk. One thing. One thing. You can live without one thing. If someone told me, I'll give you a million bucks if you stop eating pizza for the rest of your life, I might have to consider it. But yeah, we can survive without pizza. There's other alternatives. There's always alternatives. We want to get used to, you know, self-control and the ability to tell your, yourself, no, 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 I'm not doing this. I think it's a good thing in every other area of life. Uh, for a person, it's just... Um, beholden to the whims and the wills of what his body wants, they probably have much bigger issues to worry about than just kosher. Willpower, we're talking about willpower, the people that have the ability to harness their God-given talent and energy and the potential to do great things in life, they always come into a conflict between the soul and the body. There's always a conflict between the soul and body. Your body says, I want to be stationary, I want to be lazy. I want to do stay where I am. I want to stay in bed. And your soul says, I want to be driven. I want to accomplish. I want to do something great. There's always going to be that conflict. And the person who has willpower, willpower lifts, uh, you know, lifts the person to reach that, uh, you know, to have that ability to, make, to, to persevere, to be successful, to have the wherewithal to be successful in that decision. So it's a good thing to have anyhow. It's a good thing to not always say, oh, I need a drink, I'm out. Oh, I need to eat something, I'm out. Oh, I need to smoke a cigarette. Okay, I'm going to smoke a cigarette. Oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, let's change the channel. It's a good thing to learn to tell yourself, no, no, I'm not doing it. And you might say, you might say, oh, I need it, I want it. Right? But, when you're, but when you refrain, when you abstain from doing something that you want to do, right? you realize that it's actually not you wanting it to do, it's your body wanting to do it. And that's a good thing to have a little bit more of the decision-making power in your mind's control and not your body's control. So <clears throat> you eliminate one non-kosher food and you start looking for kosher symbols on packaged food items. And when you're ready, eliminate another non-kosher food item from your diet. Point is we want minimal pain. We want a little bit of pain because there's always going to be pain. It's always going to be difficult. A little bit. A little bit of pain, that's all right. That needs to withstand. If you, in one day, you change your diet overnight, you're probably not going to be that successful. You might be able to, with, you know, to hold out for two or three days, but you'll revert back to your old eating patterns. If you eliminate one item, maybe two items after you know, a month or two, that you could do no sweat. Stage three. Familiarize yourself with a kosher butcher in your city and the kosher section of your lo- local grocery. So now we're getting a little bit more to the core um, buying habits of, of the kosher consumer. You start saying, okay, the kosher consumers shop differently than non-kosher consumers. Where is the meat sessions? Where do they buy meat? 
Oh, the Bible here. Oh, there's a kosher meat section in Randall's and Kroger and Belden's. Right? And there's the kosher chicken section in Costco. And there's the kosher meat here and the kosher meat there. Right? Familiarize yourself. How do kosher consumers shop? You have to learn things that kosher consumers do. Because I'm sorry? We have a kosher guy here as well. I'm just going to give a... Uh, number two, you eliminate non-kosher meat from your diet. This this could be a big deal, but really it isn't because almost everything that you want to eat is kosher. Right? It might be a little bit more expensive, maybe 20-30% more expensive because it's kosher. Um, of what can be kosher in the supermarket, you know, generally four out of five options are ketchup, peanut butter. Um, right, but here he's talking about meat. He's talking about meat. And 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 yeah. yeah so you, you, you the, yeah, it, the non-kosher beef and the kosher beef is the same beef. One of them is kosher, one of them is not kosher. Over the year, for, per person, it will cost you a couple hundred dollars. <coughs> so it's yeah, it's 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 nominal, no big deal. And another good advice there in parentheses: you could begin only at home and later stop eating non-kosher meat even away from home. So it doesn't have to be uh, entirely. I mean, it's, it's a much bigger deal if you're. Uh, to keep kosher in a foreign city or outside of the home is a much more difficult thing. Maybe introduce that at a later stage. We were in Spain and Barcelona, and all we could eat was basically like even a Mars bar is not kosher in Spain. Um, you could have Coke, but literally. Like, My dad, when he was when he was in diamonds, he was in India. There's no there, or well, partly there's no demand really. There is some kosher restaurants in certain cities, Milan and uh, Barcelona. Have one restaurant it was only open for lunch. Uh, but there just there just is no checks on, on anything, and uh, so they change the recipes. Uh, even Coca Cola changes the recipes. You know that city on city, country on country. Yes, yeah, they, they use different in England. Coke in England is different. Yeah, if you go to, if you go to the Coke Museum in Atlanta, you could taste Coke from every different part of the world. Really, that's so yeah. cool. And are they all kosher? Uh, well, I think <laughs> I think in 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 the I'm sure in the museum it's kosher. That's what the headquarters of Coca Cola is. But like for example, they said that in. Um, because they take, they test, they, they test to see what the local palate likes. So, like in the Middle East, for example, it's very sweet because they like sweet. You know, certain Arabian countries, it's a hint of bitterness. And, you know, it's like certain countries that they just drink Pepsi. Yeah, they have like a bunch of like you just say, "Here, one South Africa, one to Vietnamese," on it, and then they have huge bathrooms. And they people just sitting there drinking. Bottles as well, because the culture. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Cool. I have a question before yeah. you move on. So what do you do when you travel in a country in which there are no kosher restaurants? Yeah, so this is a huge challenge. It's a huge I mean, I tell my, my dad was in India. He used to bring, uh, when he went there for business for like maybe four or five days, he would bring with him like, jaw, like canned food, you know, from the States. But you can get whole raw fish. Yeah, so there are there are workarounds, but it's uh, sometimes it's a combination of being stimpy in what you're eating. Number one, number two, planning beforehand. You, like once the kosher consumer, once this is already integrated, that's the way they think. You don't have to say, you don't have to like re- realign yourself. You don't have to have this recalibration. And say, wait a minute, how do I have food? Like the first thing you think about is, wait a minute, I'm going to a place that probably won't be any kosher food. What do I do about that? You can so, live on fruit and veg for a week. You could. And fruit juices, 100% fresh squeeze. If they squeeze them on the side of the street or whatever. That, that's correct. But you, so, so it's... Fish is easy. 
Okay, so so it's a combination of number one being limited to a small amount of foods, and that's why it's important to have the education to know what you can eat, what what you know, what maybe you could find in some farm places, some kosher certifications, what you can eat without a certification, and what you could bring with you. So it's a combination of of, of education and and you know being stimpy what you're going to eat because you'd be limited, obviously, and uh, and you know and and number three, bringing alone stuff, packing, right, planning. So you can just throw an ice cream. <laughs> just the cones. You can eat on the cones. Like three meals a day. Just cones. I'm sure the people that have done that. Insane. You can eat hungry. That's all we ate. I'm telling you. Just it's a disaster. And you, we took tins of tuna. Yeah. And we took pitas from because pitas last a few days. And that was pretty much it. But you can, if you take your own knife, you pick up a knife in the supermarket, you go to any place where they have whole fish. And these countries all sell whole fish in the supermarket. Yeah. It's not like America. Yeah, but they kind someone of like me, with a knife. someone like me doesn't have, yeah. Well, in Europe, you travel with a knife. There's no guns. Someone like me who, does, who doesn't. Uh, an apartment with a kitchen. What do you mean? Yeah. You, you go into the store, let's say a supermarket, you bring your knife that you can even buy in the supermarket at $2 while you're there. And you ask them, can you fillet the fish for me? And they wrap it up in front of you. So they're using a clean kosher knife. They just fill in the fish. They wrap it up. You take it home. You throw it on the disposable grill. Buy a grill somewhere. Just to wash it off in cold water. Sorry. They're messing just no, to wash it off. No, you can't use a tray knife. We have it. We, there's reasons why. Um, they don't use a tray knife. The buying a knife shouldn't be the biggest of deals. No, that's not because you're yeah. first. Yeah, in the same store. <coughs> so you can keep that knife for the rest of your vacation. Mm-hmm. It's not illegal to carry a knife. Oh, it can be in certain countries. Hmm. More than four inches in the United States. Um, okay. So you eliminate non-kosher meat. You uh, replace it with kosher meat. Eliminate non-kosher seafood. Replace it with kosher seafood. Try various pastries of your local kosher bakery. Once again, you're trying to become more and more familiar with the purchasing habits and eating habits of a kosher consumer. Just one other thing also. Before we plan any family trip, you know, if we're going to pick a destination, we're on the computer looking to see What's, what's available there? Mm-hmm. Obviously, we can go to the most grocery stores and find all kinds of kosher stuff. But, you know, we don't plan a trip without knowing what's there, what restaurants are there. You know, if, if we have to go in and we're going to spend the weekend in a hotel, we, we get our car, we go straight to the store and stock up, and then we go to the hotel room, put everything in, in the refrigerator. So you plan, you plan those extra steps in before you travel. Like you said, you, you do your work before you, before you leave. You don't wait to get there to find out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of places, like if you if you go to any major city in America, there's kosher restaurants, right? Is it internationally? It's more of a problem. Right, yeah. right. That's true. That's true. But in the United States, it's like, is there any? Do you think of any big big city doesn't have you kosher? Every Walmart has has is fifty percent. Same about kosher restaurant. Restaurant. Uh, yeah, there's cities. You you learn to like, like I mean, Nebraska. Big cities. Any big city in America. Metal. I'm sure Omaha has some Chabad house that has some kosher. And you, you, you yeah. know, like, I can live on tuna fish for a couple of days. Or I can live on whatever. And a vegan diet is pretty much inherently right. kosher, so, so vegans do it somehow. Now, grain is the only thing that you can't just pick up any grains anywhere you go. Are there any grains that you can do yourself without having to bake it like with like a proper baker? What do you mean? All flowers just, inherently just kosher. Just about any store. Yeah. All flowers inherently kosher. So if you go to a store, even when you're in the middle of you know, Vietnam, you get a bag of flour, you get some clean water, and then you have to crush the oven. You have to self-clean the oven. Yeah. That's it. it might be a bigger deal to find clean water. 
exactly. classic thing or But generally, first world countries will have kosher options. Third world, yeah. which will Thailand. Oh, there's a kosher option in Thailand. There is. Shanghai has tons, tons of kosher. A lot of crazy kosher. Australia has tons of kosher. Holy Europe. It's not necessarily third world, because I was in Italy and they put pork in everything, basically. Italy has a lot of kosher. Yeah. Depends on part. Yeah, you have to yeah. be in the capital of Germany. But if you're doing a whole trip to our own country, you know, when you stop in the main cities, you, you stop in the <laughs> You eat twice, because you ain't eating tomorrow. It's healthy being forced to eat fruit and veg for a week and ice cream, packet ice cream that you can see the hash on. Peanut butter everywhere. They bring stuff from America, mind you. They have supermarkets. The big supermarkets have an America section because there's a lot of expatriates and whatever. Patriots, what do you guys say? Patriots. Um, and so they have like no, they, they say have Patriots. English sections. Have you noticed how the supermarkets have a little English section with all our, our biscuits and our tea and it's a fortune because they bring it in from England? But that's for people like me who need the good quality chocolate. We don't have Hershey's in England. There's nothing Hershey's in England. They wouldn't let it in. They said this is below quality level. This does not meet our taste standards. Huh. True story. Okay, uh, stage four. You're getting a little more serious. Right? Stop eating meat and dairy at the same meal. That's a big one. Right? You're trying to develop in your mind this major separation between milk and meat. Um, when you're ready, begin waiting an hour or two after eating meat until dairy. It means separation of milk and meat is not only for consuming them together, it's consuming them in the same meal, even in the same table, unless you make some sort of uh, differentiation uh, sign. Uh, additionally, there is this, there's, the, there's the weight. The weight between after consumption of meat, don't eat uh, dairy for a little bit. If your ancestors want kosher, so you have no idea what your tradition is. You, you take where they came from. Doesn't matter what. It goes by where they came from. So yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, if they're German, Lithuanian, um, yeah, anywhere in North Africa, if they're from uh, Arabia, anywhere from Persia, you just follow whatever the tradition is of that. Because these traditions go back hundreds, hundreds of years, way before kosher, way before, way before Jews in Mas decided to abandon Jewish laws, amongst them the ritualistic laws of kosher. So these traditions are much more deep-seated than the uh, particular decisions of the forebearers of said person. <laughs> okay, what I'm saying is, is that your um, subject who says he doesn't know his, his grandparents didn't keep kosher, well, his great-great-grandparents did. And their communities had a custom, and that's the custom that he adopts. Everyone Jewish today who's still Jewish some point their ancestors were religious of course has to be of course the whole idea of the whole idea of a non-religious Jew is a relatively new thing it's 200 years old well, that's it it's 200 years old it's the emancipation right the enlightenment the enlightenment the emancipation of Jews from Europe that's the first time well there were always some individuals as individuals but the idea of a Jewish community abandoning practice of, of Judaism is a relatively new thing without being forced to you mean not like the Spanish yeah, not like the Moranos or the, the Conversos or those those people. Voluntary. Yes, yes. That's brand new. Literally brand new. It's the 19th, 19th century. That's all it is. You don't have it anywhere. It's not, not documented. Well, maybe you could say the uh, the, the different uh, uh, schisms, the different uh, uh, you know sectarian groups that existed at the time of the first century of the Common Era, like the Essenes and the Dead Sea sect and the uh, Sadducees. To a certain degree, those people but had a group. But remember, these some of these people, well, some of them were huge. The 
Karaites in the ninth century were very big. Uh, the Sadducees in you know two hundred years before the Common Era, but really reaching a crescendo during the time of you know first century before Common Era, first century after the Common Era, second century, third century, huge, huge, like a quarter, a third of the Jewish people, Sadducees. What did they and change? Some, well, they they rejected all of oral Torah. All oral sources. So in some areas they were more stringent. Like, for example, they didn't have any warm foods in Shabbat. It's a famous example. No warm food. That's why we every Jewish family has chamin or chalant on Shabbos because it's a sign that we that when the Torah says not to kindle a fire on Shabbat, it means not to kindle a new fire. But if you have a fire from before Shabbat, you can make, you can keep the food warm, and that's not a problem. And we're trying to show the Sadducees, non-existent Sadducees, or the Yevusim, which which uh, history doesn't really tell us much about, but in Jewish sources are put, you know, in very uh, close parallel terms to the Sadducees. Uh, these people said, "We're not the no no." Uh, there's even a couple of them left, I think. Oh, the Samaritans. Well, Samaritans weren't really Jews. Anyhow, we're getting the history lesson. A good Samaritan. <clears throat> Begin buying five or six uh, types of products with a kosher symbol. Become more aware. It's all time more, more aware and changing your mindset. This takes, uh, I would say, a couple of months. Uh, you, you, you know, you start looking at packages, examining for la- the labels. Uh, for example, to give an example, only pur- purchase tuna, pasta, coffee, ice cream, and olives with a haksher. Coffee does not need a haksher. Coffee does not need a haksher. I guess even yeah, if it's ground. Because they roast it the same way across the world. Even if, but even if it's flavored? No, not flavored. Unflavored. Unflavored. And the rest of it's disaster. No, I hate I hate French vanilla. Ooh. Oh, someone gave me like a raspberry coffee. <laughs> oh my that? gosh, that's a crime. Coffee I, has. I, I made the first cup. I poured it out because I thought it had like detergent in the cup. Like, we have fantastic pecan coffee by Cat's Coffee. It's just so a quick plug for Cat's Coffee. <laughs> yeah, but uh, coffee innately has so much flavor that it doesn't need to, you don't need to add artificially add flavor to coffee. Mistake. Anyhow, so like a fish, stage five, begin purchasing, purchasing only kosher food for your home. Eliminate all but one favorite non-kosher restaurant. Once again, we don't want to push it too hard, too fast. And seriously, considering consider koshering your kitchen and the summit, the top of the line, is someone's ready to kosher their home. Discussion with the rabbi means go for it. You go all in. What is think- safe Okay, so the, 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 that, that's a good point. So we see a little bit about the progression. This is all about stage two. You have the inspiration. You're into the implementation stage. As you're implementing different areas, of, so this is this this is all in a vacuum. But in other areas of your life, you're going to be faced with certain challenges that you need to be prepared for. For example, Alex says, "What what if you what what, what, what you're not we're not kosher restaurant? restaurant. Uh, what can I go in and still order?" Yeah, but and this is a very practical question because if someone's having a business meeting or a lunch meeting, you know, professional meeting, they're usually done in restaurants. Yeah, and, my wife has it all the time. And what does she do? Week. Oh, she orders a shrimp and doesn't know anyone. Okay. It's <laughs> been a joke, but, um, you know, what do you do when you have a professional? So there are so there are some workarounds to that. Uh, for example, you could just say I'm ordering, uh, you know, fruit and, fruit and Coke, for example. I just... Cut up some fruit, give me some Coca-Cola, good to go. Uh, another thing, you could uh, meet in a kosher restaurant. There are some, we have some decent kosher restaurants here in Houston. Um, you know, if you're in a bigger city, there's no problem. If you're in New York City, there's like no problem. There's more kosher restaurants than not kosher restaurants. Uh, there's just a, 
plethora of kosher restaurants in New York City. Um, but it's also important. You know, you could be honest about this. It's not, it's not like you have a disease if you're keep kosher. You could say, listen, communicate with people. I can only consume kosher food as a result of my religion. I think in, in Houston, you shouldn't have any problems. Vegans, I understand, but so it's okay for them to say we're vegans. So what's the difference? That's correct. Vegan but even in even in Houston, in our in our time and place in uh, in the world, you know, and where we are exactly in the Bible Belt, people are very very receptive to the idea of a Jew who keeps Jewish law saying I don't eat non kosher food, and we meet in kosher restaurant, or we meet, uh, or just I'm not going to order because I can't order. Or let's go to Starbucks and have coffee. Or let's go to Starbucks and have coffee. So that's a very good question that Alex brought up. This is a common theme. This is what the, this is what I call the last stage. It's the implementation, and then there's a the perseverance, dealing with the uh, challenges. Another challenge, for example, what if you do? What do you do? With something you know, your grandma invites you to your house. What, what are you going to do then? You know, so uh, you know you can't compromise. If you're you're kosher, you can't consume non kosher food, even if you know, even if your your grandmother. I have that. But Florence, she wants us to come over and try her. her she's eighty six. Her Swedish meatballs. We can't eat in her kitchen because she cooks bacon and her stuff all the time. So she comes to our house and she brings the ingredients and I look at all this stuff she brought in and I say, okay, go ahead, use my kitchen. You know, last, great. last week, no, was, it, was it last week or was it two weeks ago? For Friday night dinner, Shabbat, um, we had a Shabbaton. And there's this guy who comes to one of our classes. He's uh, in Beth El in the Reformed congregation in, in uh, Missouri City. And he makes a wicked chop liver. So he would say, I want me to chop liver for this Shabbaton, for this Shabbat party. So he said, wonderful. Come over to the house. He came over to the house. He, he, he made a chop liver in the, you know, in the kosher home using only kosher items, kosher ingredients, kosher equipment. And he's able to make the food you know, in a kosher environment. This is just the kind of things that the kosher consumer is aware of and understands how to avoid these challenges. And, you know, it's also important, like you said, you know, the more you know about kosher, the greater, the easier it is for you to work around it. You say, oh, Grandma, you want to make food in your house? Sure. Can I buy the ingredients? Sure. Can we use maybe disposable pots and pans or, you know, you know, or maybe you let me uh, put the oven on a self-clean cycle and, uh, you know, use some, use plasticware? Sure. What's, what should be the problem with that? It doesn't have to be a conflict. You know, there's other issues, there's bigger issues in life to fight over. Than uh, whether or not you do a you know an hour long uh, self cleaning cycle, you know, <clears throat> I I personally like I you know I, I encounter issues as well. I've been keeping kosher my whole life, but uh, I was once uh, making schnitzel for my family, breaded chicken and uh, fried chicken. My wife was out; she took the kids to the park, and I'm making schnitzel, flipping, and she watched and she's like, "What are you doing? You're using a milky." Pen yeah. for schnitzel for, for for poultry for meat. So what do I do? This is the you know this is even me because I it looks the same that the pans to me look they look I I I didn't for a second think I was using the wrong pan I must have just picked them up with the wrong pan. And my wife is much obviously she's she she's much more attuned to what goes on the kitchen. So she freaked out. So I, what I do I I called up I have a friend one of my my one of my colleagues who I went to rabbi school with, and he's an expert in kosher. I called him up. What do I do? What do I do with the chicken? Is the chicken kosher or not? Is the pan kosher or not? Because the pan also can be affected. It's a, it's a milky pan, but it has meaty uh, activity going on with tremendous heat. You know, so he says, well, you should do this with the pan. The meat's fine. 
right? Continue the cooking in, in, in a different uh, pan. You know, but it's important to have an open relationship with someone you can ask questions that may arise. Right? This is all about integrating this into your life, learning to deal with kosher, and there will be issues that arise, and that's fine. That's why they invented rabbis to help with these problems. <clears throat> uh, Starbucks is something you brought up, right? Kosher, uh, um, uh, or coffee is kosher. Right? Unflavored coffee is kosher. Milk is kosher. And the Starbucks line lines in here, but the you know flavored tea needs 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 to have kosher certification. Flavored coffee as well, uh, creamers and cream also need to have kosher certification. So the more you know about these things, you you know that oh, I could go into any Starbucks in America and get any packaged food if it has a kosher symbol symbol in it. You know, if it's not packaged, I probably can't eat it. I can't eat it, but I could just order coffee from the you know from the. What about, so I became kosher, so what about people who are my friends who are like Jewish, but I'm not sure how religious they are, how do I know if I can eat in the house or not, if they invite me for a meal? Because I had this come up the other day, and I didn't know, he was grilling some mad steaks. I had no idea how religious he was, really. I never asked him, and it's a little uncomfortable to say to someone, hey, they could be This is why, this is why, I'm sure Rabbi Gilman as well, but uh, Rabbi Warner doesn't eat by anyone's house. He doesn't eat anyone's house? He made a blanket rule. Uh, the rabbi Andrews, I don't eat by anyone's house. Obviously, he doesn't have to offend people. So then you don't offend people by saying, oh, you, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but what about us, practically? Uh, I think if, you know, you trust someone, you know, you would let their, you know, you know, their son marry your daughter, or you let them, you know, you trust them enough to, I, I don't know, that's the criteria I would probably use. So now, don't get too kosher. excited. I went to your house for Shabbos. Relax. Regular kosher. No strange season. No harvest job. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the Gemara says, the, the Talmud says in Yuvam 76, that this is the source um, that, that a, 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 any individual is believed to be assumed. Eid ne'eman It's a principle all over the Talmud. A single uh, witness is believed with regards to matters of ritualistic law. Right? Is it kosher or is it not kosher? Why is that? Because otherwise people wouldn't be able to go to other people's house. When I go to your house, you say it's kosher, I can trust you. Now, if you don't keep any laws, well, then I can't trust you in anything. But assuming, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of a fine line. You have to make it difficult. call. make it difficult to know who you're dealing with, you know, who is this person, can I trust him to make a kosher food. Uh, a few other things, like all major domestic beers are kosher, even though they don't have kosher certification. Um, scotch generally is kosher. There's some more information about this. Wines need to have kosher certification. You know, kids is also sometimes a big deal to get them to keep kosher. Um, you know, as parents, you have to be skillful maneuvering um, your kosher adop- adoption with your own ch- with your children. You want to host a party, huh? They can trade up your kitchen when you're not home. They That's can true. get a DiGiorno pizza, put it in your oven. Well, yeah, but you know, as parents, you have to. But it's not that with anything, anything in parenting, you have to use you have to use you have to use skill in navigating the challenges of, of parenting. Yeah, hosting parties in your house shouldn't be a problem. There's, a, there's so much variety, so much options. Um, you almost never encounter a problem with that. So that's it. Kosher, three easy steps. Inspiration, you make a decision. You learn about it. Implementation, slow, gradual. We have a bit of a framework for that as well. And we talked about the various um, issues, the various um, things that come up typically. And if anyone has any questions, I'll take them now.
And uh, thank you all. I will take one of these, read them, discuss lots of information about you know local and national, global kosher issues. Do you have any suggestions?